This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Choddy, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. Uh, So you've got no excuse not for listening when you can. But I appreciate you downloading the podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we're talking food. One of my favourite things. But Henry Dimbleby has just quit as the government's food czar. He tells me why and what we should do about it to try and sort out what we eat. That's coming up in just a moment. Before that, though, they're back. It's time for this. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Yes, we say a very good morning to the steptoe and son of news. It is uh, Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And Henry Zeffman. Morning, Henry. Good morning. Right, let's talk about Boris Johnson. Uh, Rishi Sunak warning this morning he will not intervene to stop Boris Johnson being suspended from Parliament for misleading MPs, if indeed he is. I mean, it's entirely possible, Henry, that this committee uh, finds that Boris Johnson did not mislead Parliament. And the in far from it being a kangaroo court, is a fine upstanding uh, defender of uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, It appears increasingly unlikely. I mean, look, let's just be precise about um, what they are investigating him for. So it's not whether he misled Parliament. It's whether he misled Parliament and in doing so, deliberately or recklessly, was in contempt of Parliament. So the bar is moderately high. uh, But then the charge sheet, as it were, uh, is pretty serious. Um, the committee published this. It's sort of called an interim report. It's not quite that. It's sort of statement of the case that they intend to press against him. They published this a couple of weeks ago. Um, and over 20 or so pages, they identified four different ways in which he might have misled Parliament when he said things like, I have been assured that the guidance was followed at all times, that no rules were broken and so on. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but then the sort of kernel of their case, the sort of the, the, the nub that it reduces to, is uh, they basically say it's ridiculous for Boris Johnson to suggest that uh, he might have had to rely on assurances uh, about whether parties took place or not, because we know from photographic evidence and for the fact that he was fined at being a 
fined for being at a rule-breaking gathering, that he knew they were taking place. Um, and that's kind of what he's going to have to defend himself against. Yeah, well, you said you gave a peek behind the curtain, so let me give you a peek behind column writing. I, having been very strongly of the view that Boris Johnson should resign as Prime Minister over the parties, then took the view that maybe um, the the parliamentary case wouldn't be made out. And it would be a really interesting column, given my sort of normally antagonistic position on the parties, if I was to say, in fact, a fair trial is essential and in a fair trial he's got a reasonable chance but then I made the mistake of reading all the documentation um, and and you know I was tempted into this position because David Panic, Lord Panic, was uh, his lawyer and I generally find him very compelling when he speaks in the House of Lords if you if you're minded to vote against him it's generally a good idea to miss his speech because at the end you end up you end up thinking oh, maybe I'm not right about this even when you are um, <clears throat> so I, I did um think you know once once I'd finished reading everything that David had to say in his legal opinion and then I read the documentation I wouldn't be persuaded um, by the case against Boris Johnson from a parliamentary point of view as opposed to him having to resign office but when you read it actually you find that there's really very little I can see that would defend him. He's promising this bombshell reg revelation of advice that he was offered. Quite aside from the point Henry's already raised, which is the question of uh, whether he, why he even needed such advice as he was at these events. But OK, let's accept the idea that he was at the events but thought that because it was during work hours and he was working, uh, he was not breaking the law. Actually, he went further than that. He said no laws were broken. He didn't just say, I didn't break the law. Um, and therefore that defence, that bit of the defence, I think, falls anyway. Um, but, but, but secondly, it doesn't look as though he's got this bombshell uh, a piece of, um, of, of message or information. And the very fact that they're briefing, the, the suggestion they've got it, and maybe building themselves up to suggest the committee has in some way uh, done him in by refusing to publish this... Um, you know, I, I I think that probably indicates everything you need to know about whether or not he thinks ultimately the case against him is made, and I think it is made. I mean, I think the fact that a lawyer as... Uh, that he's got a lawyer as uh, highly qualified as, as Lord Panic, and yet so much of Johnson's defence appears to rest on questioning the integrity of Harriet Harman and various other members of the committee rather suggests to me that Lord Panic uh, has not identified some sort of sterling uh, argument on the facts... Uh, and therefore they're having to resort to questions about procedure. Yeah, the, 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 the strongest part of the panic um, case is um, that the committee has to discover that he showed intent. And, the, and really, it's an arcane dispute. The, the com Privileges Committee's lawyer, Ernest Ryder, suggests they don't have to show that he intended to mislead the Commons in order to find him guilty of contempt, but his intention will be important in deciding on the sanction. Uh, whereas, um, uh, and and panic says, no, intentionality is uh, essential to establish before you can even find him guilty at all, never mind the sanction. Actually, when I read the documentation, I, I ended up thinking that Ryder was probably correct. Uh, it's difficult, I'm not a lawyer, but um, and, and the two of them are very distinguished, so it was difficult from that point of view to pick between them, but I think... Um, that actually contempt of Parliament is very broad. It's not a narrow thing. It's for Parliament to decide what constitutes contempt. And yes, intentionality is, and in fact, in Boris Johnson's case, I think more recklessness, which is another element of intentionality, than than deliberate uh, lying. In other words, he, he never cared whether he told the truth to the uh, Commons or not and didn't know much about 
whether he thought it was inside the law or not, all that mattered to him was to be able to answer the question in some sort of semi-convincing way at the time. And do you think then that the the knock-on effect of this, because we you know, hear it all the time, everyone thinks all politicians lie all the time and, they, you know, Boris Johnson's erosion of trust and public discourse and all that. Will this push the reset button on that a bit, do you think, Henry? If he is found to have knowingly, deliberately, recklessly misled Parliament by saying something that he knew and everyone else could see was not true. Does that slightly change the way that politicians carry on in general or is this just a Boris Johnson question? I think it is in large part a Boris Johnson question. And also bear in mind what has to happen here. So should the committee find against Boris Johnson uh, and recommend a sanction? And by the way, suspension of 10 days or more would, would probably mean a by-election, Boris Johnson expelled from Parliament. But but whatever the committee finds, if they find against him, or indeed if they don't find against him, there has to be a vote in the House of Commons uh, upholding their report. And Rishi Sunak has already said that he'll give his MPs a free vote. So what you will have, even if the committee really goes for Boris Johnson, is 30, 40, I mean, we can debate the numbers of Conservative MPs arguing volubly for days and then in the floor of the House of Commons that Boris Johnson is a stand-up fellow, that a kangaroo court is... Um, taking him down because of Brexit or whatever. What, you, know, you can anticipate their speeches now. I mean, we could name who, who will make them as well. And um, so I don't think that is going to be a sort of sterling moment if, if it gets to that point. I don't think that would be the sort of sterling moment for Parliament's integrity. I think, if anything, it would underscore the tensions in the Conservative Party. And also, I think, it would raise questions for Rishi Sunak because Rishi Sunak wasn't just his Chancellor, wasn't just his Chief Secretary to the Treasury. He was one of three... Uh, up-and-coming ministers, Oliver Dowd and Robert Jenrick, both key members in his cabinet, who basically made this man prime minister. An awful lot of the people who will vote against Boris Johnson in that vote would say it was clear that he displayed patterns really of recklessness yeah, yeah. years ago. I think it, I think Rishi Sunak should use this moment. I'm not, I don't think he will, but I think he should use this moment to put a you know to address that issue um, because his. Biggest problem, not one I think actually he's going to be able to overcome, but nevertheless one that he needs to tackle, is people saying, well, you know, I don't mind you because his approval ratings have got better, somewhat better, um, but I I can't vote for the Conservative Party because of its recent past. Um, now, I think actually that's more of a mood, time for a change. It'd be very hard to address, and nothing he says is going to alter that, but... You know, I don't think you. There, I don't think there's a narrative for the Conservative Party at the next election that doesn't go through addressing Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and both Rishi Sunak's differences from them and his support for them. Um, and he's got a reasonable story to tell. He did ultimately resign from Boris Johnson's government, albeit that there are also the questions that you ask. He also endorsed him. Uh, so there, there are, there, there, there's a tricky case for him to make, but there is one for him to make. And I think he's got to actually uh, think about making it. Is it possible, Henry, do you think, that what the committee will do is find him guilty uh, of contempt, uh, but sentence him to eight days suspension? I do. Um, that, it has to be ten days, Matt, yeah. as you know, to, um, to, trigger for, the to trigger the reset. So at eight days, it would be a serious sanction because, you know, in the history, they, they bounce around those sanctions, don't they? But... Um, and, and there's never been a precedent on this lying to Parliament. No, there hasn't. I mean, if, if Matt will permit me, I'm going to get really niche here. Uh, Welcome it to is Times very Radio. possible that they will um, want to avoid that political conflagration and give him, say, eight days or nine days. But uh, the motion that the Privileges Committee will lay before the House of Commons is amendable. Uh, the government tried to change this after the Owen Patterson case 
Um, and they made it so that standards committee motions are no longer amendable, but they forgot about the privileges committee because it hasn't been used for many years until this point. And so I think what would happen in that scenario is that the Labour Party, maybe, or an enterprising MP might say, well, hold on a second, you know, the Owen Paterson row was over lobbying. That was less serious than lying to the House and we gave him 30 days. You know, Patrick Mercer years ago got half a year. Um, now, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think it's possible. I don't think that would necessarily be the end of the matter. I think it would be unlikely that he would. it would then be upgraded by Parliament to 10 days or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think that route has a lot of complications down it as well. Yeah, it'd be difficult for them to do that. I, when, you look, when you do look at the record of suspensions, you think it's likely that it would be more than 10 days merely by precedent. Yeah. And actually, I think the committee probably will act... Uh, you know, my, my my standing assumption is the committee will will try not to make that kind of political calculation. They will try and stand back from that, look at the evidence before them, and then look at the precedent. And those neither of those things are very good news for Boris Johnson. I think they will actually try and act in that way because don't forget, you know, there's a majority on the uh, committee who are conservatives, um, and um, you know, admittedly they're not. Uh, particularly Boris supporting Conservatives, to put to, to, to put it mildly, in one or two cases. But I think that... So my, my, my central assumption is that he, we will end up in a, in a situation where there's a recall petition. And then there's a by-election, and then it puts to the test the idea that he's a great vote winner. Of course, uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it might help him. Yeah. Uh, this is another thought, which is, of course, <laughs> it might mean that he loses um, the, uh, the, the seat in Uxbridge, which he's going to lose at the general election anyway, uh, allowing him with um, m more easily to seek a nomination somewhere uh, else. That's really interesting to come, that, back, that to come then, back at the next that election then, and that, seat. Well, that then does put to Rishi Sunak the question of whether he allows that to happen. Um, and, um, you know, I think when somebody's been suspended from Parliament and then recalled in that way, uh, can it happen? But I do believe it's legal, isn't it, for someone to do that? I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd have the right to stand in the Uxbridge by-election. I mean, by the way, the, the, the scenario you posit there, I mean, we would then have a situation where the two major party leaders from the preceding general election, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, <laughs> might not even be seen by their parties as fit to stand to be MPs in the subsequent general no, election. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I thought it was yeah, crazy yeah. between 2005 and 2010 that there was a whole suite of different party leaders. Yeah. I mean, this is... this is. But it was a terrible choice to have, and if that is uh, the last general election, um, yeah. you know, certainly I found it yeah. um, a terrible choice to be given. Uh, still got Henry Zeffman and Danny Finkelstein here. Uh, let's turn our attention then to Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, in one of her last public appearances as uh, SNP leader and First Minister, uh, she made a speech in London where she gave a warning about the impact of social media on politics. It is distorting debate. The sheer pace of rolling news encourages us to speak first and think later. Minor dramas become crises and then catastrophes in what can often feel like nanoseconds. Algorithms create echo chambers. They obliterate nuance and force us into binary positions that polarise even, sometimes especially, the most complex of issues. The distinction between objective fact and subjective opinion has all but disappeared. Absolutely everything is contested, which makes finding common ground much, much harder. If only she knew anyone who was ever very aggressive on social media from her party, it would be um, amazing. Uh, it was also slightly reminding me of me, this is a chip down memory lane, when Tony Blair stood down, uh, in his many, many speeches he made on his uh, farewell tour, when he made this criticism of the media. 
What creates cynicism is not mistakes. It is allegations of misconduct. But misconduct is what has impact. Fear of missing out means that today's media, more than ever before, hunts in a pack. In these modes, it's like a feral beast, just tearing people and reputations to bits. But no one dares miss out. Oh, the feral beast, but you're too young for that, aren't you, Henry? Do you remember the feral what, beast? To be, to be one or to remember it? Uh, well, I mean, some journalists actually took to wearing badges, I seem to remember, with um, a feral beast on it. Actually, I'll, I'll give you a flavour of how sad I am. Um, yeah. I've been rereading the third volume of Chris Mullins' diaries on the tube <laughs> this morning. Uh, he had the feral beast speech, oh, you know, as, as Blair stood down. So there you go. There we are. I'm, a well, I'm well aware. Um, is this just what every leader who feels a bit hard done by by everything ends up saying at the end, Danny? It's all the media's <laughs> fault. Well, they, really horrible to us, the way we kept winning elections. Look, I mean, first of all, when I was listening to Tony Blair, though, I thought, you know, that'll never work uh, doing that. It'll, um, and it'll never make uh, newspapers act differently. And I, I wasn't even sure I completely accepted his analysis. I think if, if you then looked back at the events, which he was probably referring to, things like Stephen Byers and, um, and uh, what brought him down, I don't think... You know, the newspaper coverage was probably wrong on, on those cases. Um, but uh, there's no question it was a bit bruising. Uh, and you're right also in the put the aside you made about Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. I mean, I think anyone who's been online understands that one thing you don't want to do is there are certain things you don't want to tangle with. And one of them <laughs> is definitely you don't want to tangle with anybody who tweets uh, who's a Scottish nationalist ever. Well, on, I, I made a joke Twitter. about them this morning who was accused of uh, fueling support for the SNP, just like dared to... Right. Well, it's, it's cases in which there are a large number of people who feel extremely passionately and think that the yeah. opposing position to theirs is completely immoral. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly get a fair share of those. And you've got to try and read those... So I think a little bit is how you treat them. And I try to treat everybody as if they're shouting at the radio. It's just that I have to be able to hear them and reply. <laughs> and um, therefore, um, they, they, don't, they do mean the point that they're making, but they don't always mean the tone in which they're making it. And I try then to deal with them in that way. Um, but there certainly are questions about social media. Some of the some of the evidence that I've been reading, Jonathan Haidt, the author, has been um, putting out in in in, uh, in some detail, and he's written writing a book on it, which suggests that the impact on particularly female mental mm. health of social media. He's actually thinking less Twitter, which is what I think uh, Nicholas Sturgeon was referring to, than his Instagram and Snapchat. But there are certainly some questions about the impact it all has of like being able to have all these people come at you the whole time. And I've occasionally felt that mm. in, in my different, you know, both in my with my politics and my football hats on. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing she's very right about, never mind all the rest of it, is the pace of the news cycle. You know, actually reading that, those diaries I was mentioning, you know, a lot of criticism in New Labour was about the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, now it's the sort of... 24-minute. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, and I think that's... I mean, you know, we have live blogs on the Times website, which we didn't even have a year ago, let alone a decade ago, or whenever Nicholas Sturgeon became a frontline politician. So, you know, I do think there is a case for Westminster and so on deciding to step back, but, I mean, you know, there's a first-mover disadvantage there. No yeah, and also, it, it might be a good point, but it's not a great... Maybe the, the messenger isn't great. It's not why she's resigning and it's not why the SNP leadership election is a mess. Henry Zeffman and Daniel Finkelstein there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next is Henry Dimbleby. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, it's a food fight. It's the battle between the people who make what we eat and those of us who know we probably shouldn't be eating it. Some have tried, most have failed. Turkey Twizzlers. They're only like... 30% 30% turkey, so the prospects of what else is in them isn't particularly good. The cheapest bag of pasta used to be 29p for 500 grams, now it's 70p for 500 grams. That's a 141% price increase. We're down now in this country to only 60% self-sufficiency on food, and um, you don't want to go any lower than that. We are in a huge catastrophic issue unless we admit something has gone wrong and we need to face up to the realities of it rather than just telling everyone we got Brexit done. This is all going on at a time where kids should be concentrating on schoolwork and it's just crazy to think that this this is still going on. Uh, that was uh, Jamie Oliver, Jack Monroe, Jeremy Clarkson, Tom Kerridge, Marcus Rashford and some children who wanted their turkey Twizzlers back. Well, the latest person to have a have a go at sorting out this problem is Henry Dimbleby, who up until a couple of days ago was the government's food czar. Do we call you a well, czar? I, 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 that, no one calls anyone a czar except for the newspapers. I was a, a non-executive director at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Yeah, you're a food not czar. Quite a, not quite as easy to pronounce. <laughs> and Henry, as you can hear, is in the studio now. Henry is the co-founder of the Leon restaurant train. He published the National Food Strategy. Uh, but has quit. We'll find out why in just a moment. But he's got a new book. It's called Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet Into Shape. And Henry's here in the studio now. So we've established that you were a food czar. Why have you resigned from that job? So I resigned because I wanted to speak more openly about... I, I did a, a food strategy, an independent route for government. Uh, they took uh, recommendations on... Uh, food poverty. Marcus Rashford actually campaigned for some of them. That was him yeah. talking about some of the stuff I did. They, they're, they're making good but slow progress on the environment. They have gone backwards on health. And I wanted to talk about that. In 10 years' time, whatever government we have, whatever colour we have, they're going to be mopping up the problems that are being created today uh, by the food we eat. It is the biggest cause of avoidable disease. It's projected that by 2035, the NHS is going to be spending one and a half times as much trying to treat type 2 diabetes as it does all cancers. There's an unexploded bomb we're sitting on. 
and no one is doing anything about it. There was a brief moment when Boris Johnson put his ill health down to uh, the food he was eating and his weight, and he was saying, OK, we're going to all exercise together, we're going to restrict junk food advertising for children, uh, we're going to re- restrict bog-offs on, on buy one, get one free on, on unhealthy food. But then that kind of went away. And uh, just before, actually, Boris Johnson resigned, Sajid Javid was about to publish a white paper on this, on health disparities, the fact that if you're in the, the, the lowest 10% of the population, your life expectancy is going backwards. You live less longer than you did 20 years ago. But that was pulled, and now the government... The, the last thing they published was Steve Barclay's paper, and it was talking about prevention, but what he means by prevention is waiting for people to get sick but treating them a bit earlier. And actually, you know, Churchill said the biggest asset a country can have is the health of its population. We can't expect the NHS to to continue to clear up the mess caused by all the other parts of the population, of the, of the economy. What's interesting you talking, though, is how so many people in the... It was only 2021 you did the reports. It's so many people uh, have been and gone during that period. And I suppose because it needs a sort of long-term strategy, and actually there's been no long-term strategy in politics for the last three, four, five, six years, probably each getting to the end of the week has been the achievement. What was your experience of being inside government, having been asked to do the report for Michael Gove? And then, it's a good pub quiz question, I should, I should have made a note of this, all of the environment secretaries Can you name them? since... Uh, Michael Gove is obviously Therese Coffey now. Um, Raniel Jairadina was in the middle. Very briefly. But there's another one, isn't there? There are two more. Two so more. It was, it was Gove, Theresa Villiers. Oh, of course. George Eustace. Yes. Very briefly, Raniel Jairadina and now Therese Coffey. And, and four prime ministers as well at the same during the same period. And out of those, who got it and who just really didn't get it? Well, so funnily enough, we've just been talking on a on a... I've been downstairs at the Times Health Commission talking to Michael Barber about how you change systems. And you need two things if you're going to be serious about changing a a multifaceted cross-government thing. You need someone who's telling the right story, who's, like, getting everyone behind the fact we need to change, how we're going to change. And you need quite serious managerialism, people actually trying to get things done. And uh, I think when I started, Michael Gove brought me in to do this, and he really got it. He was telling the right story. I said to him, you're not going to be here. Chance you're not going to be here when I publish. Um, so I tried to do two things in the, in the review and in the book, which is tell people how the system actually works and then recommend solutions. But s- since that period, I think th- the key thing is stability and number 10. Uh, you need to have a serious centre because, you know, if you look at the advertising decision, for example, restricting advertising of junk food to children, I, I had a meeting in Defa with ITV who came in and, told me that adverts don't work uh, and that if they if they were banned, then children's TV would end. Um, you have DEFRA saying this is going to hurt the food companies and then you have DHSC who's going, we can't keep the, the health yeah. uh, department, we can't keep clearing up this mess and you need a number 10 who is going to broker those discussions. And I think it's pretty fair to say that... Um, through uh, our last two but one, through jo- Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's administrations, it was it certainly seen for a department, it was quite chaotic in number 10. They weren't making decisions. Interesting with Truss, even though she'd put, she was criticised for putting all her lieutenants into the departments and not bringing in other people, they were complaining that number 10 wasn't making decisions. 
Um, so that is, you know, you need, if you're going to get anything done, you do need some stability and you need people who are both able to to sell the vision and to do the hard work of actually getting things done. The problem is, though, and we saw this particularly during the, the Truss era, is that the, the phrase nanny state gets thrown around. As soon as you say, uh, we should restrict this, we should stop doing that, we should ban that, the nanny state, you know, they, we couldn't, they, they, they had a huge government row about whether or not they should tell people that if expe- electricity is expensive, you should turn the lights off. The idea of interfering in offers and where you can find things in supermarkets and what should go into food, that's nanny state. Is it, is it impossible to do what you are trying to do with a Conservative government? When, in, well, with a Conservative government, I don't think so, not of any shade. There is a neoliberal element to the Conservative government which is out, actually out of step with citizens. We uh, used uh, uh, pollsters and focus group runners who'd worked with the Tory party to run focus groups on this stuff in Grimsby, in other seats in the Red Wall, in the southwest, up in Cumbria. And people are fed up, actually, of being... This is one area where people want government to act. But you have this kind of, no, we can't do that. And what will happen if, if there isn't any interaction? The problem I describe in the book is the junk food cycle. So our appetite makes us want to eat this stuff that makes us sick. Food companies, not because they're evil, but just because that's what sells, have put billions and billions of pounds, more money into that than selling anything else. We eat more, they put more in, we get sick. You need to break that cycle. You either do that by restricting what the food companies can do, or... Now, with these new weight loss drugs, you put 20 million people in the population permanently medicated to, to, to change their appetite. And while I think that um, actually in severe cases, it is a, these drugs are good, they, really, they help people, they help people live better lives, I don't think that that is a sustainable way to treat this problem. So what do we do then? Because how, without major intervention, saying, look, you just can't sell chips, you can't put this crap in the food that you're selling, that's that's. Bit, I mean, we had a huge row about how much sugar you could have in f- some fizzy drinks. Yeah. Uh, um, so what what are the levers that you think can realistically be pulled to fundamentally change the fact that as a nation and as the you know the West as a whole we're all getting fatter? So there there are there are two things that need to happen. One is in kind of doing something to break that commercial incentive, and the other is about culture. On the commercial incentives, the advertising, restricting advertising, is probably, of all the measures they were considering, the most powerful one. It is a no-brainer. No one wants their children to be advertised as stuff. They should ban it. And actually, the studies show that rather small reductions in calories could have a huge effect. Restricting bog-offs, I actually think it's not politically possible now, but at some point we should expand the sugary drinks tax to a sugar and salt reformulation tax. Those things actually could, combined, have a huge effect. Alongside that, you need to change culture. So we need to uh, teach people to cook again. There's a lot of evidence to show that in communities, if you work with people to teach them how to shop, teach them how to cook, you can impact obesity that way. And what about the fact we're right now in a cost of living crisis, which inflation doesn't look like, I mean, it might come down a bit next year, but it's baking in, essentially, what's happened in the last 12 months. People are barely getting by. And the trouble is that the, the, the worst food is the cheapest food. It's yep. formulated stuff, it's processed, it's microwave meals and all of that. And so people who are really struggling don't have the time or the money to go to classes to learn how to cook fresh, healthy food. Um, the, 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 the drive towards uh, eating badly 
is the often that's the cheapest food as well. Yeah, it is. And I, I think you have to separate the the kind of the least affluent 10%. Mm. So the food the, the three cheapest ingredients in the food system are refined flour, refined sugar, and refined vegetable oil. Those are the things that are cheapest per calorie. And a lot of our junk food is effectively mixtures of those three things with salt yeah. made to look like a pie or made to look like this. In the long term, that is not a structural solution, viable solution to the problem of poverty and inequality. So, you know, we have to deal with inequality. We have the inequality in this country that's off the scale. But actually for the bulk, the large bulk of people, there are solutions that are actually not that much much more expensive. And it is simply being bombarded. You know, if you go into a, uh, a service station now, it is almost impossible to find food. I was driving up from from uh, the West Country uh, last week. We stopped at a service station. The only thing that I could buy that vaguely resembled food was a slightly soggy wrap with limp iceberg lettuce in it and a bit of what was described as katsu chicken, but some kind of chicken deep fried many days ago and cold and all the rest of it was pies cakes chips crisps you know and that we have to make it easier for people to eat well Uh, one thing i want to ask you about is uh you're talking about the fat acceptance movement which is particularly taken off in america but as you the point that you make both with the food but also cultural stuff we basically uh, britain eventually imports everything from uh, from america do you think, I mean, it's to try and sort of destigmatize and prevent fat shaming, but do you think that that's problematic when actually encouraging people to lose weight rather than celebrating being quite severely overweight? There's, a, there's clearly a balance to be struck, but do you think this is a, a problem, the fat acceptance movement? I think it's aiming at the wrong thing. I'm, I'm very against fat shaming. Uh, I'm a massive Lizzo fan. Um, and... Uh, uh, it, it, fat shaming is counterproductive because that isn't the problem. Willpower, we haven't had a massive collapse of willpower. And actually, if you shame people, you stigmatise them further, they get stressed, they get depressed. We know that overeating is, a, uh, is an issue. What, I, what they talk about, however, in that movement is healthy at any size. And if you look at America now, and we talked about this in the book, the opposite is true because of the food system. You can be unhealthy at any size. Yeah. There are people who are di- pre-diabetic in America who don't know it because they eat crap food, but they don't have genes that make them put on weight. And actually, those people are more likely to die from diabetes because they don't think they're at risk than people who are heavier. So I think that uh, accepting... Not putting the blame on people is absolutely critical. We haven't had a mass collapse of willpower, but that doesn't mean we should accept the status quo in terms of societal weight and societal ill health. We can't afford. We can't afford to. I was going to ask just finally then, if we don't do something about this, if this isn't gripped either by Rishi Sunak or if there's a Labour government after the next election, what happens in five, ten years' time? Well, so I mean, Andy Haldane made a speech the other day talking about. Uh, ill health and dietary uh, diet we know is the biggest cause of ill health. Ill health being uh, the biggest restriction to growth. So economically, it's disastrous for our country. What then happens is the cost to the NHS becomes more and more. That sucks in money from all the other departments because we can't let the NHS go down. And in the end, that's not sustainable. You get a massive, uh, you get a massive economic crash. Uh, the NHS goes down and. More importantly, that is misery to a lot of in a lot of people's lives. Their carers, grandparents, grandchildren who don't who don't 
get to spend time with their grandparents. So it doesn't end well. Have you sent a copy of your book to Tweez Coffee? I was going to this afternoon, actually. Yeah. How <laughs> confident are you she'll take any notice? Um, Therese, interestingly, is... We're talking about kind of s selling a vision and then getting on with the management. She is very, very focused inside DEFRA on environment and climate change in a way that, because she was part of the Liz Truss administration, no one expected her to be. So, but I think she will see health as not her as not her remit. And she did. She did she could for She could repart She, she did wonders for turnip sales a few weeks ago. So maybe she could do the same thing for. <laughs> I mean, that that is having fights about whether or not it's okay to to. Um, to eat turn to tell people to eat turnips while this is going on is one of the kind of things that drives me insane. That's what we talk about. Heavy, it's really good to see you. Thank you very much. That's heavy. Dibble will be there. The book, yeah, which is written with Jemima Lewis, is Ravenous: How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape. So we're still talking food. Uh, Henry Dibble, we uh, came in to talk about his book, but. Is it really possible to uh, lecture people about the food that we eat, and particularly the cheap food era, in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis? Uh, well, growers in Britain and overseas must agree to a long-term fixed price supply. Agreements offer no flexibility if the cost of production rises or supply stripe is one of the uh, is uh, one of the problems uh, that they face. Uh, let's speak to Abby Reader, a farmer in South Wales and deputy president of uh, Cymru uh, National Farmers Union. Hi, Abby. Morning, Mark. Um, uh, first of all, what do you grow? Tell us about your farm. We're a mixed farm, so we do mainly dairy milk to go into the liquid market and we do sheep beef and we grow some crops as well and how is uh how is business without going into the ins and outs of uh you know what you get paid but i know speaking to other farmers uh the sort of the pressure that you come under from supermarkets and they'll just say well we're just going to start paying you 10p less for that and uh, you've just got to lump it while also probably demanding higher standards yeah, we've seen incredible price hikes for, for any inputs that we've got coming into the business. That would be particularly fertiliser, fuel and any feed that we buy in. Um, lamb at the moment is struggling because we had the drought of last year. The lamb trend, the, the times of year when people tend to sell their lamb, that seems to have shifted a bit and it's altered the market. We've got a bit of lamb then coming in from overseas, so coming in from New Zealand as well, which is sort of linked to the new trade deal. Dairy on the whole, we have seen uh, an increase paid for the price of milk uh, that we were producing, but that has started to drop now at the start of this year. In fact, it's plummeted by the biggest amounts that I've in, in one hit that I've ever seen. Um, so basically, it's all over the place. So what? So what? The the price you were getting for milk was creeping up last year, and now it's really dropped. That's what's, it. What's we had a massive that? short. We had quite a shortage during the summer of last year, a lot of it linked to the drought, some of it linked to market signals suggesting that, that farmers were um, losing confidence in, in what they were producing, particularly with the high prices. So yeah. the, the price crept up and everybody responded to that. Uh, and then we hit January and it just it crashed. So, um, yeah. Um, the, what, what are the criticisms uh, that is being made of the sort of government's approach to all this? Professor Tim Lang, I think, from City University in London. Uh, he he said the government's adopted a sort of leave it to Tesco approach. That it the sort of what we eat, what we buy, the price we pay for it is ultimately le left to supermarkets. Do you think they've got too much power in the system? Uh, I think they've got a massive voice. Yeah, um, I think that we need to have a much more joined up approach here. And and speaking to farmers is surely absolutely essential. Surely there should be farmer representation around that table to be able to be giving you the signals uh, such as the weather is having adverse effects at the minute, or we know that a lot of our farmers are not able to get these inputs for their farm. Um, some of these farms have mothballed their greenhouses or mothballed their chicken sheds, whatever it is. 
they need to get more intelligence on the ground and, and just leaving it to, to one or two major voices isn't enough. Uh, let's bring in Ashley Armstrong, who's the retailer at The Sun. What would the supermarket say to that? Mm. Do they have too much power? Are we just leaving it to Tesco? And ultimately, they're in business and they want to sell more stuff to us. Yeah. And we probably want to buy more of the unhealthy stuff. <laughs> well, the, yeah, there's, I mean, it's one of those big arguments. I mean, on, on the milk prices, you know, um, I'd be completely right. We've seen huge input costs for farmers. And that has fed through to the price that customers are paying already. So we've seen, the, you know, the one pint to go above a quid for the first time ever. Um, milk prices that shoppers are paying for are 40% more. And those basic essentials on food, they're the most expensive things like, you know, pasta, bread, uh, milk, eggs, all of those things have, have shot through the roof. And the supermarkets would argue that they've got this real balance uh, balancing act because, one, they want to kind of make sure they've got supply, but they want to have the lowest prices. And especially when we're in this environment where Aldi and Lidl, which sell much reduced range, but for lower prices, they're hoovering up customers who are kind of a lot more cash conscious. So, so the game has been changed. Um, the goalposts have been, have been moved, and uh, in, in terms of kind of you know the supermarkets have got ever lower margins to be going uh, and competing with, and that is going and pushing down the food chain, meaning that farmers are being squeezed ever more probably. What what is the state of the retail sector? Are they making billions? <laughs> uh, or, depends on what on, on yeah. I mean, let let's face it. During the COVID, they had an absolute roaring time yeah. because people were buying more food than ever before. Well, I was reading the, in uh, Henry's book, like pre-pandemic, twenty yeah. percent of the food we had was outside the home. It's yes. only for all at home. Exactly. So we're, we're buying twenty exactly. percent more stuff. Yeah, and so and we were spending a lot more because you know that was one of the rare enjoyments to have, and we all uh, developed scratch cooking and b baking banana bread and things like that. So do you remember it was an yeah, absolute yeah. nightmare to try and find flour? Um, so, yeah, they, they have had this kind of absolute tailwind. They have had a lot of higher costs mm. at that same time. And they recruited thousands of extra workers as well. And they're facing the same costs as everybody else. What they argue, and you saw this kick off recently between some of the big suppliers like um, Heinz and Unilever, um, supermarkets tend to operate on a profit margin of about 2 to 4%. So it's pretty thin anyway. Yeah. Um, and with all these higher costs, they would argue that, yes, their sales are going up, but their profit margins have come down. These massive uh, food suppliers, particularly what we've seen with Unilever um, recently, they're all crediting these price increases and reporting mega, uh, mega margins as well, despite saying that they're getting higher costs as well. So there is this big tension on like where... What we've what we've seen it called as greedflation, you know, yeah, yeah. who's who's using these kind of inflation as an excuse to ratchet up the price even more. Uh, Abby, where do you sort of see the state of British farming now, and then in sort of five, ten years' time, is the government sort of gripped by the fact that if we're not careful, basically, lots of you know we saw I think with chickens towards the end of last year, yeah. you know, people just end up leaving leaving the industry altogether, which means relying on more imports, which is a bigger climate change impact, probably lower quality, possibly more expensive. You know, you've also got the, the problem of Brexit and the fact you can't find people to work on the farms to harvest the food that we all should be eating. How, how, do, you, how do you think the farming industry feels right now? Is it unloved by politics? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much exactly what we're feeling, Matt. Um, I think that we are getting a huge amount of pressure from supermarkets and food service. I think food service sometimes get an easy ride in this, um, pushing for bigger and leaner businesses. And this is driving more and more of us out of the market. 
um, and leaving behind some some very stressed businesses. I mean, we just heard that that supermarkets can make a profit of between two and four percent. Actually, we know from the latest reports on uh, a sustainability review um, that farms are making a profit of between 0.1 and less than two percent. Mm. So we're even we're even sort of under more pressure. And on top of that, then we're seeing seeing increasing pressure on farming mental health due to stress at work. We're seeing more on-farm deaths. Um, and it's it's really just it's re- reducing our diversity as well. So we get lots of farmers that are pushing to become more and more specialist, which means you are then very much at the mercy of potentially just one supermarket because all of your produce will have to be committed to one person, mm. most likely. Mm. Uh, and, and all of that diversity that you had in your business, you know, if you're suddenly being impacted by the weather or or by fertilizer price, whatever it is that you really rely on. If you've just got it all, all those eggs in one basket, for want of a better pun, there's a huge amount of pressure there. So um, if we're looking to the future, I think that farms would like to see some uh, a bit more stability coming out of the government and a bit more reassurance that um, they do appreciate that there is a certain amount of food production that we must achieve in this country. We really must to, to get through the geopolitical uncertainty, to get through climate change uh, and to make sure that we have got a healthy country, which is what David Dimbleby's book um Sorry, Henry Dibbleby's book. Henry Dibbleby's book, yes, absolutely right. I think it's about farmers. I think everyone would like a bit of stability in government, Abby. Uh, Really good to speak to you, Abby. Really appreciate that. Abby Weeder there, Farmers South Wales and Deputy President of Cymru National Farmers Union. Always good to see Ashley Armstrong as well, Sun's uh, retail editor. And like I said, uh, Henry Dibbleby's book, uh, Ravenous, is published uh, March the 23rd. So a couple of days' time. That's out on Thursday. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.